Brian Wilcox is the chief engineer and co-founder of Marine Bioenergy Incorporated. Marine Bioenergy was founded to grow plants in the open ocean to provide carbon-neutral fuels so that eventually fossil fuel use can be eliminated. Previously, Brian spent 38 years at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory working on robots for planetary exploration and other extreme environments. He was the supervisor of the Robotic Vehicles Group for over 20 years and manager of the Space Robotics Technology Program for nearly another 15 years. Brian Wilcox, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We're really excited to learn about marine bioenergy. It's a new field, but you have a lot of experience in terms of designing, building robots for extreme environments at NASA and at DARPA. And also, I should mention, for those that don't know, your father, the late Dr. Wilcox, was also involved in this the potential of kelp as a biofuel. So just tell us a little bit about the, the journey of this exciting alternative to fuel and why and how it is viable today. Well, my father actually proposed ocean farms for growing energy crops back in the late 1960s. In the early 1970s, he wrote a proposal to get some funding to explore this concept, and he was working for the United States Navy at the time, and he was a civilian scientist. When the first oil embargo of 1973 happened, suddenly the Navy became much more interested in what he was doing. And so he got a significant increase in funding at the time of the first oil embargo, which allowed them to build a little test farm and to do a bunch of tests and experiments to see whether it was possible to grow crops in the ocean and transform them into energy. Basically, the U.S. Navy needed diesel fuel. Jet fuel is kind of a variant of diesel fuel. And so the ships mostly run on diesel fuel and the airplanes run on jet fuel, which is the lightest fraction of the diesel fuel. So they were abundantly interested. We had about a 10-year program to develop that concept, and it was moderately successful. They had you know, their ups and downs, but it was moderately successful. His concept was to upwell nutrients from the deeper parts of the ocean. So the open ocean is essentially completely devoid of nutrients, and that's just the very top layer. That's the top 100 to 150 meters typically is devoid of nutrients. And if there were nutrients there, we'd have, instead of being the blue planet, we'd be the pea soup planet because you'd get a growth of algae, which will very rapidly bloom into a very thick uh, mass of cells, which would absorb all the sunlight, absorb all the nutrients. And then those single-celled organisms would die in a few days and then they'd sink and they'd carry the nutrients with them, which is why the top surface waters are all scrubbed free of nutrients because any nutrients that are there, a cell very quickly grabs onto those nutrients, grows, lives its life cycle, and within a few days it dies and the, the carcass sinks into the deeper water and that cleanses the nutrients out of the top layer of the water. So his idea was to upwell nutrients from the deeper water to allow the plants to grow at the surface. Well, there's a problem with that, which is the nutrients tend to dissipate very quickly. They're cold. That's you know why they're below the thermocline. It's much colder water, so they tend to sink. They don't tend to stay put where you want them. So the problem is you have to do a lot of upwelling. And then you will also get a lot of growth of uh, single-celled organisms and other things you don't necessarily want if you upwell the nutrient-rich water. I had this concept of taking the plants to the nutrients instead of taking the nutrients to the plants. So 
we filed a patent on that. And that's the basis of marine bioenergy is the concept, which is now patented worldwide, the concept of of taking the plants down to the nutrients at night and bathing the plants in the nutrient-rich water all night and then bringing them back to the surface. Now, we did not know whether this would work, so we wrote proposals to government agencies to try to get funding to show that it would work. And eventually, we wrote a proposal that was accepted. And so we were funded by the U.S. Department of Energy, the so-called Advanced Research Projects Energy, ARPA-E, And we did, in fact, show that it does work. So we had a a group of test plants, about 30 plants, that we depth cycled daily for 100 days. And those plants grew much faster plants in the adjacent native kelp beds here off the coast of California. So we are very thrilled that it did, in fact, work. I was pretty confident that it would work because it's long been known that organisms tend to grab nutrients wherever they can and whenever they can and stockpile them for lean times ahead. So it was not surprising that at night, if you expose them to nutrients, that they will absorb those nutrients as fast as they possibly can. And then they use them the next day when the sunlight to do photosynthesis. So we did show that this concept is viable and that now leads to the next step, which is to build a prototype farm. So we're now negotiating our next round of funding with RPE, and that will start in the second quarter of next 2022. And we expect to build and test the first ocean-going farm. All of this is very exciting. It's so crucial, biofuels. But yours in particular with kelp has special attributes. When we compare the issues with different biofuels, it's a carbon neutral cycle. Just tell us a little bit about the benefit of going towards kelp and also the challenges you face. Well, kelp has the great advantage that it's self-confining and it's self-cleaning. So it's self-confining in the sense that you plant it on a line and the holdfast grabs onto that line just as if it was a rock on the floor of the ocean and it holds dear to that. And then the plant itself can grow to 30 meters easily and sometimes 40 meters. So it's a huge plant. It grows very rapidly. It grows 30 to 60 centimeters per day. So you can actually watch it growing. People have watched it with a magnifying glass. You can actually see the growth tip growing because it's so energetic. This plant is really quite remarkable in that it grows so rapidly and it builds biomass so rapidly. Also, unlike most terrestrial plants, it does not have cellulose, at least not much cellulose. It has a little bit of cellulose and no lignin. Lignin and cellulose are very hard to break down. Uh, There's been an effort now decades long to try to process so-called lignocellulosic biomass, woody biomass. And it's very difficult to convert woody biomass into useful energy products. And that's because the wood and the lignin are very tightly bound molecules that do not want to untangle themselves. They're great for what they do, which is they provide mechanical support to terrestrial plants to get them higher than the adjacent terrestrial plants. So in the forest, of course, you have this tendency to want to reach the canopy and to be the highest one in the canopy to get the sun. And if you don't get to the canopy, you often don't survive. So you need this woody biomass in order to create a tall structure that is very strong, can survive windstorms and things like that. The land plants have evolved wood 
in order to solve this problem about competing access to the sun. Whereas in the ocean, you don't need wood to do that. The kelp can attach itself to rocks at the bottom at a depth of somewhere between 10 and 30 meters. And then it head to the surface and it doesn't need wood to do that. What it has, instead, it has little flotation bladders. So every blade, a blade is like a leaf, except it's big. It's like a palm leaf. It's half a meter long or more. It has a little flotation bladder at the base of each frond. And that frond then floats the whole thing to the surface. Now, in our case, because we depth cycle, the pressure change going down damages the, the bladder. And so we actually, in the depth cycled kelp, we do not get bladders filled with gas. We get bladders filled with liquid because the pressure changes during the daily depth cycle are huge. And the gas would either implode or explode depending on whether you're going down or going back up. So it turns out that the plant doesn't seem to mind depth cycling. The bladder is filled with liquid, but since we're in control of the depth of the plant, it doesn't really care as long as it gets its sunlight during the day and gets its nutrients during the night. It's very happy and it thrives as if it were in near ideal uh, growth conditions. I was just curious, you were talking about the second step of your process. How large would that preliminary farm be? Well, the farm that we plan to build has a drone submarine, and the, the drone submarine will tow the farm, and the, the farms that we plan to build are about eight hectares in total area. So the current plan is to put the kelp on these long lines. The long lines are traditional in the mariculture industry. Let me just mention that there is already a huge mariculture industry in Asia, but not in the open ocean. It's all anchored near the coast, usually protected in and around groups of islands where there's protected waters from the worst storms and things like that. In those areas, China, Indonesia, the two biggest players in the aquaculture arena, they grow kelp mostly for food. So there are species in Asia where they eat them as primary primary food. And it's not so much in the West. We don't eat as much seaweed over here. It's not really a staple in the United States. And so we're growing a different species. We're growing giant kelp, which is the kind of kelp you see in the kelp forests of California, where you get these exotic habitats where many types of fish grow. And there's a huge uh, ecosystem that lives inside the kelp bed. Anyway, we expect to build individual farms that are about eight hectares. And then we would build ultimately a very large number, hundreds and thousands of these farms. In terms of the space requirements, I think you mentioned if you're going to make a serious dent in terms of our fuel consumption in America, you might need a space the size of Utah, which is large, but explain a little about what that yes. means in terms of the Pacific Ocean. Our focus is primarily on liquid fuels because liquid fuels are relatively valuable. It's the highest value product that we can make to have an impact on climate change. In order to replace 10% of the liquid fuels used in the United States of America, we would have to process the kelp growing from an area about the size of the state of Utah. And Utah is, of course, a fairly large western state. It's a good-sized area. But the Pacific Ocean has an area 705 times the area of Utah. So there's an, an abundance of area out there in the ocean. If we were to farm about half of 1% of all the oceans of the world, we could replace all the liquid transportation fuels used for long-haul vehicles. Now, long-haul vehicles are the ones that 
batteries really can't operate. In other words, there's no foreseeable battery technology coming down the pipeline that is going to allow a jet aircraft full of three or 400 passengers to fly from here to Singapore. That's just not likely to happen. No battery technologist is saying they have a technology to do that. But liquid transportation fuels, of course, do that routinely. And what we need to do is create liquid transportation fuels to allow not only the, the airplanes, but the container ships, the long-haul trucks, and so on. These are the ones that are really not amenable to battery technology, while short-haul vehicles, commuter cars, delivery trucks, fleets of city vehicles, all the different things that go home every night and you can plug them in, those kinds of vehicles, it's not a problem to make those battery powered. But there's a whole class of long haul transportation vehicles used for cargo transport primarily, and also the passengers in long haul aircraft. Those are really not amenable to battery replacement. And so we need transportation fuels and we want those fuels not to be fossil fuels because about a third of all energy goes to liquid transportation fuels and something like half of that goes to these long haul vehicles. So we want to replace those and we can do that with only about half of 1% of the ocean being farmed. If we were to further go on and, and farm 5% of the ocean, we could replace all fossil fuels everywhere. Let that sink in all fossil fuels with 5% of the ocean. Well, you know, people often make the point that there's more solar energy falls on the earth in an hour than humans use in a year. And, and this is just a reflection of that fact that the oceans are 70% of the earth's surface. So it's not surprising that even with the relative inefficiency of farming, uh, plants don't capture that large a fraction of the total energy out of the sunlight. And let me just say, that's an area where we could improve with bioengineering and so on. We might make plants that are much more efficient than the, the current natural crops. You can see areas where we could make substantial progress and possibly improve by factors of two and three several different areas within this uh, technology, but even the natural kelp that exists, we want to make it by the way. We have uh, the University of Southern California working with us. They've been the marine biologists on this project and they've done a fabulous job. They are also working under separate funding from our same sponsor. They're working on making sterile hybrids. Sterile hybrids are very important because if you're going to farm all over the world, you won't get regulatory approval without having sterile plants. We don't want to be shedding invasive species everywhere we go. The problem of invasive species around the world, of course, is a huge problem that ships, for example, tend to bring things in their ballast holds that then get out and become invasive species in other parts of the world. We don't want to do that. In order to get regulatory approval, we need to not do that. There is a team at University of Southern California that is uh, working on developing sterile hybrids. So these are plants that we can plant on our long lines that grow just like a normal plant, but they don't produce fertile offspring. I also want to address the challenges because we know when you were making robotic vehicles for outer space, the oceans also have its vulnerabilities. But I just want to break down what it means in terms of carbon neutrality of uh, kelp fuel, because I didn't understand that you could have a clean fuel, but actually there is the process becomes carbon neutral. Just explain what that yeah. means. Basically, when the kelp grows, it absorbs carbon dioxide in order to build the carbon molecules 
that it needs to grow. It absorbs carbon dioxide out of the water, but then the water absorbs it from the air because CO2 is very soluble. So if you de decrease the concentration of CO2 in the surface layers of the water, it'll immediately, within minutes really, it will go from the air into the water to replenish the CO2. So we absorb CO2 from the environment when we grow the plant, and then we process the plant into fuel. And when you burn the fuel, you release that CO2 back into the atmosphere. But the, the key point is that unlike fossil fuels, where that carbon was not in the environment before, it was buried deep underground for millions of years. Instead, our carbon was absorbed from the environment just a few weeks before, typically half a harvest cycle before. So 45 days previously, this carbon was extracted from the atmosphere and now you're just putting it back in the atmosphere. So that's what we mean when we say carbon neutral. People also worry that some things require huge amounts of upfront investment in carbon, and usually that means fossil carbon. And so people have criticized batteries and some other technologies as being more expensive in terms of carbon than their savings over their life. So we have an interesting feature that the kelp farms produce well over a hundred times as much fuel as was used to create the farm in the beginning. So over the roughly 30 year projected life of these farms, we would expect to create well over a hundred times as much carbon neutral fuel as was used to create. So the energy that comes out of the farm is typically 150 times what the energy required to make the farm. So even if you make the farm with fossil fuels, let's suppose the first farm you probably do make mostly with fossil fuels because those are the kind of fuels that are available. Even if you make the farm with fossil fuels, that's less than 1% of the total energy produced by the farm over its life. You pay back handsomely the invested energy. That's not really true for some other technologies. So when you buy an electric car and so on, it's good to check to make sure that the life cycle energy carbon footprint of the car is good. We should in some ways be going more towards vehicle sharing and just take an enormous amount of energy to, to create things. And in terms of then transportation and of the fuels, bringing the energy to where it's needed, the flocculation, the digestion process, how streamlined is that? Well, the simplest way to turn kelp into fuel is to ferment it into ethanol. Fermentation, of course, has been around since the dawn of history. And right now, people are fermenting corn, for example, to make ethanol. And that's used as an additive, as a blending agent to reduce the carbon footprint of gasoline in the United States, especially. Now, people criticize that because you're making fuel out of human food, which is driving up the cost of human food. Well, that's especially a problem around the world where many people are living on the edge of starvation. If you drive up the cost of food even a little bit, this has a tremendous impact on a lot of people. So kelp that we grow is not a human food. There's rumors that the American Indians along the coast used to eat it only in times of famine, but I'm told that it tastes terrible and, it, <laughs> and I can certainly well believe that. And most livestock don't want to eat kelp either. It could be used as a feed, but we'd use a different species. We wouldn't use giant kelp. Giant kelp probably evolved itself to taste bad so that the herbivorous fish won't eat it. I think a lot of organisms go down that road to try to make themselves unpalatable to their predators. We do believe that we can make 
fuel without impacting the, the cost of food around the world, the easiest way is to ferment the, the kelp. Fermentation takes about three days. So you basically chop up the kelp, you put it in a vat, you control the right temperature, you put in the right yeast, and the yeast ferments the kelp quite efficiently. It basically turns the sugars in the kelp. The sugars are about half of the mass of the kelp, of the dry material in the kelp. The natural organisms that we know about are about 80% efficient at turning the sugars in, in the kelp into ethanol. But if we paid some attention to making an organism that was much more efficient, we could probably get that up to the low 90s, which is where they are with fermenting corn for ethanol fuel in the United States. We know we can do 80, we can probably do 90 without too much difficulty, 90% efficiency at converting the sugars into ethanol, and then just sell the ethanol. Ethanol makes a fine fuel in its own if you design a vehicle to run on ethanol, it's a perfectly good fuel. But even more importantly, right now, it's a good blending agent. You can blend it with gasoline, you can blend it with diesel, and you can convert it directly. There is a regulatory approved method to convert it to jet fuel. Of course, the whole airline industry is very concerned. The aircraft run on fossil fuels right now, and if they're not allowed to operate, if fossil fuels are either taxed or banned eventually, they're quite concerned that those aircraft will be obsolete. But in fact, there is a regulatory approved pathway, which is not very expensive to convert ethanol into jet fuel, also into diesel, also into gasoline. So that's the easiest way to do it. And it turns out that the cost of fermenting into ethanol, it doesn't require pressure vessels. It doesn't require high temperatures. There are a lot of things that it doesn't require that make it relatively inexpensive. So all around the Midwest of the United States, you see ethanol plants converting corn into ethanol, and the same sorts of small plants could be used to convert kelp into ethanol equally. Well, that is amazing. And we should say the corn, in terms of the conversion rate of CO2, it doesn't compare to the kelp. Well, corn also absorbs CO2 out of the environment. I think people's concern with terrestrial agriculture in general is that it's competing with human food for land, for fresh water, for pesticides, for fertilizers. Tractors burn fuel. Harvesters burn fuel. So there's a whole energy footprint for the corn that is entirely non-trivial. There are significant benefits in terms of global carbon footprint to corn. But the disadvantages are that it competes with human food for all those same issues. In other words, all the things that you use to make corn for ethanol, you also use that same land and water and tractors and harvesters and so on for human food. And, and as the human population continues to rise, although it's not rising as fast as it once was, but it's still rising and probably will go over 10 billion people in the not distant future. So we do need to have enough food for all those people. And it makes sense to use terrestrial agriculture to grow that food and to grow energy offshore. One big advantage of offshore is that there's this huge available area which is basically unspoken for. And because we use drone submarines to tow our farms through the ocean, we can descend below the surface anytime we want. So if a ship is on a collision course, 
we can detect that and dive the farm below the ship so the ship just goes over the top. Similarly, we can avoid storms. If we have a forecast for a very severe storm coming by, we can just dive the farm for a few days and ride out the storm underwater. So we don't need to design the farm to take the worst conditions of the surface, which are extreme. My name is Audrey Woodward, and I'm starting my junior year at Emory University. I'm an oceans, climate change, and public policy podcaster collaborating with the One Planet podcast. I came across open ocean kelp farms a couple years ago while I was researching ocean-related methods of aiding food security. And therefore, I was very interested in Brian Wilcox's concept of using kelp as a bioenergy source. The land on Earth is tired. It is used to support trillions of people, as well as other organisms, such as plants and animals. We use it to grow food, for shelter, for resources, which we turn into appliances, and for energy. Meanwhile, the ocean is a large, untapped resource with lots of energy potential. In theory, with kelp farming 5% of the ocean, we can eliminate fossil fuels everywhere. Marine Bioenergy Incorporated contains all these advantages within the realm of green energy. It's carbon neutral, can assist the reduction of climate change in more ways than one, and as a bioenergy, it doesn't engage in the food versus energy conflict as a giant kelp is not a food source. The marine bioenergy kelp farms take the triple bottom line, social, environmental, and economic factors into consideration within its model. As we look at climate change mitigation and adaptive methods, technology has been at the forefront. The use of underwater drones and depth cycling is ingenious as it expands upon known technologies and ocean processes. Brian Wilcox's work with marine bioenergy is imperative to change the liquid fuels game. mentioned that I did a lot of work at NASA on robotic vehicles for planetary exploration, which is true. I was the supervisor of the robotic vehicles group at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for over 20 years, and we worked on rovers for the moon and Mars and other places. And then I was the manager of the space robotics technology program for another 15 years or so. I was very much involved in building and testing robots for extreme environments. My group basically did all the electronics control and software for the Sojourner rover that went to Mars in 1990, was launched in 96 and landed in 97. And then basically all those same people were seated throughout the organization to build the subsequent rovers, the Spirit and Opportunity, and now the Curiosity and Perseverance rovers. Most of the people doing that were all people that were in my group originally. I was interested in you talking about the liquid transportation and how you would use the biodiesel from the kelp in the use of long-haul vehicles as your target market. Would you ever expand to include home or personal use, or do you think that's just too small or too individual of a market or standpoint? Certainly growing kelp in the ocean for non-fuel products is a great idea, and we certainly hope to branch out into that sort of field eventually. Our immediate focus, as the name of our company implies, is energy, but there's no doubt that all the molecules that come from petrochemicals now eventually should come from some other source. So a petroleum 
is used not only to make fuel, but also all manner of plastics and cosmetics and pharmaceuticals and other products that we use in our homes all the time. Eventually, the source of those organic molecules ideally should come from someplace other than fossil fuels. We certainly do believe that it would be good to have other species. Now, we just happen to be testing giant kelp because it's the biggest and fastest growing kelp. And I mentioned earlier that it was self-confining, meaning that you hold it at one spot and you get this 20 or 30 meter patch of essentially natural solar panel that grows out from the one point you're hanging on to. That has the advantage that if you have one line, you can have a 20 or 30 meter area around that line that is all absorbing sunlight and growing biomass using that sunlight. If you have a small organism that's only 10 centimeters long, then it's harder to get a big collecting area without having lots of long lines and getting tangled up and all these other issues. It's nice to start with the largest possible organism in order to get the largest area for the investment that you make in the long line. However, if you have a high value product, it's certainly worth it. As an example, there's been a lot of discussion in the media over the last couple of years that certain types of kelp reduce the methane output of cows. If you feed even a small fraction of the feed of these cows, even 2% of the feed, if it's a certain type of red algae, then it greatly reduces the methane that comes out of the cow. Both ends of the cow, it's often talked about as cow farts, but actually the cow mostly burps methane out through its mouth. And that methane is, of course, a very serious greenhouse gas. And as long as we have huge herds of cows that are used for food and beef and dairy, we're going to have this problem. And so one possibility is to grow these smaller kelps that are less than 30 centimeters in diameter. If we grow those, we could add those to animal feed and greatly reduce the methane that is belched by these herds of cows. So that's an example of something where you're not making it into fuel, but you are greatly assisting in the greenhouse gas equation to reduce the effect of climate change. And no doubt there will be lots of other examples where either for pharmaceuticals or cosmetics or other niche products that will find organisms that can grow in the open ocean environment on our kelp farms and uh, use those to create unique products. You said you obtained permits and patents for your product, and I was wondering how or if you had any challenges with obtaining those as your product is particularly in the open ocean. Well, our permits are in the California waters. So we had to deal with the California Coastal Commission and many other, the State Lands Commission, and not to mention the Army Corps of Engineers and the Coast Guard. We had seven or eight different organizations that we had to get permits from to do our experiment. And that's mostly unique to being in California waters. If we were way offshore, we would have to deal specifically with the state of California. And uh, California has some pretty serious environmental regulations as they should. I think protecting the coastline of, of California is a tremendous responsibility for all of us who live in California. I support that, but it can be trying when it takes a year. When we tell people it took us a year to get our permits, the people who don't know say, oh, it's so long. And the people who know say, how did you do it so fast? Because it's very common to have permits drag on for many years. So we were fortunate that it didn't drag on for many years. And we think that probably operating well offshore will have 
uh, much simpler permitting requirements. But we're going to basically start that process when we get our next round of funding in 2022. We'll have to explore in great detail what those permitting requirements are, which we have not done yet. Now, as far as the patents go, we do have patents. We first filed in the United States and got those patents, but then there's a thing called the Patent Cooperation Treaty. So we filed in most of the energy importing countries of the world. We couldn't really afford to get patents in every country in the world, but we filed in all the big energy importing countries so that if somebody tried to use our process to sell into that market, we'd be protected. We have patents in nine different countries. I'm really excited about this. We know that it's one solution. Of course, you spoke about the kelp being like giant solar panels. <laughs> so how do you see it working in tandem with some of the other uh, renewable energy sources? And what is your vision and hope 10 years, 20 years from now? Well, one nice thing about fuel from kelp is that you can store it for a rainy day. Once you turn kelp, say, into ethanol, you can just store that ethanol. It's a liquid fuel. You can store it. You can convert it to jet, diesel, gasoline, other fuels. But it stores compactly and energetically in a small volume. And so you can hold it for a rainy day. Now, wind farms and solar panels don't do that. In other words, the power you get from wind turbines and solar panels, you either use it or lose it. If you don't use it at the time it's generated, then it's wasted. People are working very hard on batteries and I applaud their progress. I love the lithium batteries that are in my laptop and my cell phone. The older people will remember the cell phones that used to be this big, right? And that was mostly because of the battery technology has advanced so much in the last 30 years. However, there are strong theoretical reasons to believe that the batteries are not going to be capable, for example, of keeping the grid going during extended periods of low sun and low wind. For example, in the spring of this year, 2021, Europe experienced very low wind. It was a once in a decade or several decade event, and then it just continued all through the summer. So Europe had to burn a tremendous amount of natural gas to keep the grid going much more than they expected because the wind did not blow. Most of 2021, the output of the wind farms in Europe were greatly reduced from what was expected and what they had done last year, for example. Now, if you had kelp fuel, you could just run the existing old spinning turbines and generate electricity without carbon, without putting fossil carbon into the atmosphere. We are big fans of first and foremost replacing the fuels used for long-haul transportation vehicles, which is otherwise a market that is not amenable to eliminating fossil carbon. But the second most important use of fuel from kelp is probably keeping the spinning generators running during times of low wind and low sun. And it's not so much just the shift from the afternoon to the evening. Many people have talked about the so-called duck curve, and you want to shift the energy from mid-afternoon when the solar panels are generating prominently into the early evening when people get home and they're running all their appliances. That can probably be done by batteries, and people are working hard to do that. And it seems like that's quite a straightforward forward to solve. 
What I'm talking about is those two days, three days a week where you have an unexpected shortfall in wind and solar panel output, and you need to bring on backup power. And that backup power can be just the spinning turbines that we've been using for the last hundred years. Just keep them around and fire them up when you get into this situation and burn kelp-derived fuel. So that's relatively easy to do. To convert a plant that burns natural gas to one that burns methanol would not be difficult. It would be very straightforward to even just add a second set of burners. You have a set of burners that's designed for natural gas, and you have another set of burners in the same heat exchanger complex to deliver ethanol-derived heat energy to raise steam for a steam turbine, for example. I'm just wondering also, because you mentioned it is a really family affair with your father first coming to this realization about the enormous potential of kelp. I believe there's also Cindy Wilcox. I don't know how many members are involved in it. So it must be something like a respect for the ocean and just the beauty of the natural world instilled in you from a young age. Just share some of your memories and when you really became passionate and curious about uh, our oceans. I did spend my career at NASA. So I worked 38 years at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and that was mostly in the area of planetary exploration. I've loved that all my life, but also I love the oceans, especially. So really, if someone were to ask me, who was your hero as a child growing up, it would be Jacques Cousteau. There's no question in my mind that Jacques Cousteau is the answer to that question. As soon as I was old enough to to start reading. I devoured all his books and all the TV specials that he would make. National Geographic and other specials would appear on American TV from time to time. And so the wonders of the ocean have always fascinated me. I think it's very important. It was only much later, of course, that we realized how much damage humans are doing to the ocean. The Great Barrier Reef, all the problems with acidification of the ocean, which I might add that the kelp farming directly addresses those because it reduces the CO2 concentration in the ocean And that is the primary cause of ocean acidification and the problems with the shellfish not being able to make shells and most of these other things all go back to the acidification of the ocean. We expect our ocean farms to directly reduce that in substantial ways. We think that we could grow, because ethanol is a fairly high value product, it sells for a almost $3 a gallon, you know, roughly the same as gasoline, but that would allow us to make money fast enough that we could grow on internally generated funds quite rapidly. And at that price, we should be able to grow quickly. Now, if there were subsidies or carbon tax or something, one could grow faster. One would like to grow to by the year 2030. It wasn't that long ago, just a couple of years ago, where the scientists came out and said, really, you need to get carbon neutral by 2030, not 2050. And now we just had the COP26, where everybody said, well, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. But really, they're not. I mean, Greta Thunberg and all of the people like her are, are pointing out that the commitments that were made were not 
really impressive. The governments of the world are not yet serious. They may become serious. We hope they do become serious. But to be really serious, you'd have to have a carbon tax or carbon credits or a program that really penalizes fossil fuel use. And right now, no big country wants to be the first one to impose a competitive penalty on themselves that their competitors don't have. So the United States is an example. I'm sure that our politicians don't want to tax carbon, tax fossil fuels in a way that would make us less competitive with other countries that don't tax fossil fuels. So you can completely understand why that would be, but we need a COP26 type effort to get everybody to agree globally that we do have to have a penalty for burning fossil fuels. We need that penalty. And if we had even a modest penalty, And if those funds were devoted to getting away from fossil fuels, such as using kelp-derived fuels, I'm convinced that we could make the transition by 2030. We could be carbon neutral by 20. There's no doubt in my mind that we can do that. But it's kind of a moonshot. It would require effort, but not a lot of sacrifice. It's not like you'd be paying 10 times as much for energy. You'd be paying a dollar or two a gallon more for liquid fossil fuels. But then you'd have subsidized alternatives available to you, like ethanol or ethanol-derived fuels that make the whole experience not problematic at all. You could continue to drive in your normal fashion. You pay about what you're paying now. You just wouldn't be using nearly as much fossil fuels, and you'd be using a lot more carbon-neutral fuels coming from places like the ocean. Well, I love the specifics because I think we all want to reach all right-minded people, I think, want to reach our targets, but we want to know how we can realistically achieve that. So what you're doing is so important, and you just help us stay on this roadmap to 100% renewable, carbon neutral. You really answered my question about how you reflect on the, the future and the kind of world we're, we're leaving the next generation. We all face struggles, and I know that what you're doing as well, there's challenges. So what are some of the life lessons that are important to you that keep you hopeful that have helped make you the environmentalist you are today? Let me just say that I was invited a number of times to give a talk to a career day at the local junior high school. And so for seventh and eighth graders, I was asked to talk about science and engineering as a career. I often talked about there are three things that you do. Why do you go to work? You go to work to support your family, certainly, but also to make the world a better place and to have fun. And all the motivations kind of fall into one of those three categories. When people look around the world today, seeing the news and so on, making the world a better place is getting increasingly important. People have to pay attention to what they can do as individuals to make the world a better place. The world is not going to become a good place on its own. It's quite clear just in reading the news that The world goes downhill 
of its own accord. And if there weren't for thousands and millions of people, phenomenal sacrifices that people make to make the world better, it makes my efforts pale by comparison. When you see what some people do and the risks they take, I have basically found my job for the remaining years that I have on this earth to try to make the world a better place. And I have a role that I've picked out for myself. And I think every person should think about when on the day they die, what did they do to make the world a better place? And could they have done more? And we all need to think carefully about that issue, because if almost everyone doesn't work hard to make the world a better place, the world is going to be an awful place. So we really need to pay a lot of attention to all of us making the world a better place. Well, it's so true. And and it feels good too. It's for our very survival. Self-interest is it plays a, a big part in that as well. That's a, a big calling for anyone who's listening. Thank you, Brian Wilcox and Marine Bioenergy for your innovative approach to creating a nature-based carbon neutral solution to meet our energy needs. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Audrey Woodward. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.